Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Adam Howardson, CEO of Logisense and longtime SaaS and cloud executive. We'll be covering four main topics with Adam today. How has B2B SaaS and cloud pricing evolved? Where is B2B SaaS and cloud pricing heading? The topic of usage-based pricing, the opportunities and challenges to execute and deploy. And lastly, the usage economy. Adam, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me, Ray. By means of background, I started my career a couple of decades ago in the enterprise information management space with a company called OpenText. And we would deal with business process management, enterprise content management, customer experience management and communications, and a variety of other technologies and market segments dealing with the management of unstructured information in general. Throughout that experience, I had the chance to work in information technology, to lead engineering, to lead product management, to run the program office for the company to, you know, ultimately uh, ended my time there as chief marketing officer and then came over to Logisense a couple of years ago. I had joined the board a few years before that, but came over in the function of CEO to work in the usage-based billing space. And at Logisense, we're working on some pretty innovative things around the way that we monetize and take products to market. So, you know, I think via that background, I hopefully can bring a unique and rather broad spectrum perspective around go-to-market for the listeners. Great, Adam. You know, it's very interesting to me, and I try not to highlight this too often, but two of the companies I had operating executive responsibility at, one was a division of GE called GE Global Exchange Services, and then another was called Quick Response Services or QRS, both subscription software business. Both of those were acquired by OpenTech. So you actually were responsible for a couple of my old products, right? Well, you know, all things are connected and increasingly so. And we may explore, you know, some of that discussion in the way that products are networked today and the way that technologies come together. But as a a cohesive industry, you know, having a chat and seeing that there are connections in in your networks uh, over the past is pretty frequent. And I think even that in itself, you know, shapes the way that we monetize and the way that we look at commercialization and monetization of products. So it is a small world, as they say, and it seems to get smaller by the day. Yeah. Well, one of the things we're going to hit here first is a little bit about the evolution of pricing models in the SaaS and cloud industry. And you've been in the industry for quite a while. How have you seen pricing evolve over the last few years? And then I'm going to ask you the next question. And how do you see it evolving going forward? You know, I think back over the last decade, even. And there was an initial push as we started to see mass prevalence of cloud and SaaS type solutions hitting the market. There was a pivot point where the vast majority of companies in the tech space considered how they would shift to a recurring revenue model. And that's obviously more desirable from a valuation perspective. It's obviously more desirable from a predictability perspective. And those types of engagements, agreements, contracts are more highly valued. 
just for their continuity, you know, how sure you can be on that revenue coming in. And the entire industry went through this shift from perpetual licensing with a, you know, an annual customer service element and on-premises products into the cloud. And there was this transition period where every company had to accommodate the shift to recurring revenue. It meant they may experience a dip or shift in margin profiles over the course of a year or two while they navigated that transition. And then we got to the previous incarnation, because I believe we're in the midst of a transition right now. That was the concept of, if it's not too crude a term, but this cost plus cloud model, where I'll charge you something for the intellectual property. I'll charge you something for the hosting with a little bit of a markup. I'll provide you with that same customer service type experience, and then we'll treat the professional services sort of as its own container. And we arrived at that state. And now I think we're in the midst of a pivot again towards usage-based pricing, becoming the new norm and really sort of percolating through various industries. And I think that the lens is now we've made the shift to the desirable, repeatable, predictable, recurring revenue type of franchise. But now customer pressure, customer expectations, expectations around clarity, transparency, value for money, and this whole notion of monetizing value metrics and people paying for what they use and being able to demonstrate that as a vendor is increasingly setting apart and, and liberating those who are disruptors and who will differentiate you know, around pricing and around their go-to-market from those who will not. And it impacts a whole number of other things like customer retention rates and customer experience. But on the cuff of it, you know, to summarize, I think we've gone through a transition over the past decade from on-premises and traditional you know, line-by-line items with each component to a cloud plus sort of cost plus model. And now we're seeing the emergence of new, truly disruptive models. And we're going to continue to see that for years to come. Yeah, it's really interesting. I still see some traditional enterprise software companies who got the cloud religion and wanted to go to that hosted subscription-based model. And Splunk is a very good example. They haven't even quite finished the transition from perpetual license to a subscription And now we've got this whole concept of usage-based pricing. And it's a phenomenon right now because you see some of these best-in-class public companies like Twilio, Datadog, and even Slack, who are using a usage-based pricing model, and they're seeing dramatic increases in a metric called net dollar retention. And thus, their enterprise value to revenue multiples are going up to 20, 25x on 12-month forward-looking revenue. So a lot of people now are saying, we're going to move aggressively and we're going to deploy, define, deploy a usage-based pricing model. And I'm like, whoa, I think that's a big strategic decision with a lot of perceived opportunities, but a lot of challenges to deploy that. Can you share a little bit more about some of those challenges in light of the opportunities for usage-based pricing, Adam? I agree with what you said there. And there is risk and it is a strategic decision. You know, you're changing the core monetization philosophy of the company. And some people may rush into it, you know, on on the name of the term usage-based billing and think anything that I can count, I should start marking up and selling now. And that's not the intention here. What I think sometimes people miss is you need to put yourself in the shoes of your customer. And what specifically is the value that you are receiving from the service? And that's the item that you need to leverage your metrics and your usage events, your, you know, the data coming into the system is to formulate the right algorithm to charge for events where value is transferred to the customer and monetize around that. And again, I think we're in sort of this inflection point right now where people are starting to realize this, but deeply understanding what the value metrics are, what exactly it is that you're delivering to your customer, and then designing a usage-based model around those metrics is the vital element that you cannot miss. 
And some of the other challenges that businesses may experience as they make this change is to construct the right level of usage-based model that is appropriate for their industry, for their product. If you have large sunk costs, you're going to need a hybrid usage type model where you have some guarantee, you have some contract in place or some terms in place that will perhaps cover sunk costs or include some small margin element. And then you can add a usage-based element on top of it, structured around the value that your customer is receiving to differentiate yourself from the competition and make sure that you're truly speaking the same language as the customer. It's not an all or nothing proposition. So accounting for the scope of the change, understanding your value model for your customers, designing a program that's going to ensure that you have your costs covered and appropriate business continuity and reasonable assurances for customer engagements, particularly in the B2B space, is vital. And then using a usage-based element on top, structured around value metrics, is what's really going to set you apart, differentiate. And you talked about net dollar retention spot on. By demonstrating more value to my customer in a more transparent way, I'm more likely to retain them. But if I structure my agreement with them appropriately around those usage-based elements, it means that their success is my success. And if they grow and I deliver more elements of value and monetize those with my customers, and they're tied to the growth or the objectives of my customers, where they want to realize value from my product, they're going to stay with me for a long time. And if I have bet on their success and they are successful, so too shall my business grow through the concept of a negative churn rate, where your base is just growing year after year and you participate in that success. Yeah, it's interesting. I did a podcast just a couple of weeks ago with Chris Mealy, who is the head of Software Pricing Partners, and he shared the exact same insight you just did, Adam, which was make sure that that usage-based pricing is attached to a real value lever that the customer is getting. And his recommendation was make sure you spend time with multiple customers and prospects to make sure that's aligned. But the other thing that I see going on or the risk of usage-based pricing is even in a hybrid model, let's say it's 50,000 a month for whatever the subscription is, and then X cents per transaction, a lot of companies need to set a budget at the beginning of the year. And what if the usage becomes so large that you blow away that budget by 2X and 3X? Don't you risk some real severe customer satisfaction issues? Well, this is where you need to model and understand your product and your market dynamics. And sitting down and looking at the outer bounds, when I, you know, when I contemplate a contract, I contemplate the worst case scenario. So if it were a hybrid usage model-based contract, we look at the subscription type costs, which are recurring and at a fixed rate. And we look at the usage-based elements. And we say, even if we can't participate in the usage-based elements, will the contract still stand? Will the value you know, for both parties involved still stand on its, its own two legs? I think that if you are designing or you have taken to market a model in which there, if there is no usage-based or participation beyond the minimum baseline, and you have not ensured that that minimum baseline is at least sufficient to cover the cost or to wash and ensure that you can continue to provide the service for when the usage does come into effect, you may have improperly designed your offering. So in these cases, it's great to engage with, you know, of course, I'll say an organization like Logisense or a pricing strategist or ensuring that you're working or have the expertise on board to contemplate the model that you're designing. You know, this is the big data term, you know, brings the same thought to mind. We can talk about big data. We can talk about predictive analytics. We can talk about recommendation engines and we can talk about data lakes. We can talk about accumulating mass volumes of usage-based information. 
But if you're not incorporating into your strategy or into your perspective, the development of that value algorithm, just because you have the data doesn't mean that you're productive. You need to do something with the data to glean insight from it. So you have to be thinking in advance about which metrics you want to measure, You know how seasonality, how consumer behavior may affect your business model. In that same way where the data is just there, unless you do something with it, you know a business model can be dangerous to you or it can be massively advantageous. So when contemplating that hybrid model, ensuring that you have conducted a model on that baseline subscription element before introducing usage and other elements and finding the right people to consult with to accomplish that in the right way, I think is of vital importance. Yeah, I'm going to circle back to something you said earlier, and that is one of the benefits of the SaaS business model was the predictability of the revenue, and thus the multiples were higher. When we go to a usage-based pricing model, whether it's hybrid or almost exclusively usage-based pricing, the process of forecasting and telling your board of directors and investors, or if you're a public company, telling Wall Street here's how I believe our revenue is going to manifest over the next one, two, four quarters is now based upon customer activity and even macro and microeconomic trends. How do you think organizations are prepared to forecast in a non-pure subscription model? It does add a layer of complexity, that is sure, but I don't think it's as disruptive or uncertain as you may imagine. And whether it's if it were a greenfield opportunity deploying a usage-based model, you know, obviously that carries a little bit less because deploying a greenfield opportunity with a traditional model carries, I think, you know, similar unknowns. Taking and converting an existing business, you're going to have a wealth of data available to you about your existing customer base, about their seasonality, about their usage, about their burstability, when they require more or less of a particular service. And you can use that to influence your MRC modeling for a particular set of customers. And I think both based on historical data, as well as sitting down with a customer and talking through, you know, talking through those elements in an account plan, perhaps at that level or, or at a higher level, or by doing some aggregate analysis over your general revenue flow throughout the year, you can start to model what the usage may look like. I think that perhaps regardless of whether it's a usage-based or traditional element, some of the macroeconomic factors are going to impact either one, either way. But, you know, having the, the wherewithal to understand what your customer's historical behavior is, if you're moving them into a new model or doing some forecasting and modeling on what you think a net new customer may look like, and you're going to arrive at a zone. So I think you do have the less to the dollar certainty, but imagine you're a CEO and say, if, you know, you're going to have 5% less certainty, but you may have a 15 to 20% upside that you can participate in. You know, those are the sorts of factors that need to be considered when deploying these models. Yeah, I think that's a real interesting perspective, because if you look at the current correlation of certain SaaS metrics that's most directly, and I will say causally impacting enterprise value, that net dollar retention, it's now got a R squared or correlation of about 0.35 to enterprise value. And that's almost twice as much as revenue growth right now. So I actually see a strategic decision that a lot of companies are going to make and that may be moving to a low friction product-led growth customer acquisition model that has less contract value up front, but has the ability to really drive that net dollar retention or expansion over time. And my question to you is, I don't think a lot of SaaS companies today that are pricing on more, I'll say, fixed variables like number of users, right, or overall database size or number of pieces of content or records, that they have the product analytics infrastructure 
to look at all the potential usage-based variables that they could put pricing on. So do you think companies are going to invest more in a product analytics infrastructure prior to truly investing in a usage-based pricing strategy? I think the two come hand in hand. So you're going to have to get a system in place first, which can accumulate, mediate, understand, and dispatch your usage data in a meaningful way to your analytics repositories, to your data lakes, right? So are we accumulating the right information in the right format? Do we have our hands around where it all lives and let us start collecting it? I believe that you do need to invest in that infrastructure. And even investing in that infrastructure to gain insight once you are collecting all of this usage-based data, as I'd mentioned previously, still requires you to understand what do we do with this information? I may have a data lake that contains every event that's ever happened on my network, contains every API call my software has ever made for each customer, all categorized beautifully. But now that I've accumulated that, so what? How am I using it? And I think of equal measure to we need a tool which allows us to use it. And we must invest in that area and make sure that we have good insight and that we have good data analytics. Do I have an understanding of what then to do with that data? How to analyze it? What types of algorithms should I be applying to it? How can I use information about the API calls that have been made to predict the seasonality and the behavior of my customers throughout the year and potential revenue flow or impacts? Or how can I do a product usage following? You know, if I use product A, then I'm likely to use product B, then I'm likely to use product C. At a particular time of day, can I position a piece of advertising related to that? Or can I inform a product upsell based on that? And not only putting the, the tools in place to get those types of insights and outputs, equally important is having somebody to analyze and create those outputs appropriately for whatever your end goal is, and to apply that practice to gain those insights from that data once it has been accumulated. Yeah, you, you mentioned the need for maybe different or additional resources like data analysts, data scientists to evaluate all that data. I've been having discussions with people about where does pricing fit if you're going to move to usage-based pricing? Is it a marketing responsibility? Is it a product responsibility? And I'm even seeing some people advocate for a chief monetization officer. And what she's responsible for is really bridging the gap between market opportunities for pricing and product requirements to drive pricing. Do you think that kind of chief monetization offer is going to make sense to really optimize usage-based pricing strategies and models? I think it could be a useful thing. It depends on where you train the cannons. And I think that if you are instilling a practice within an organization exclusively driven to leverage analytics to extract additional revenue, you may eventually end up hurting yourself. I think that if you have such a person in a role to consider the customer experience, the value outputs, retention, transparency, you may have a very good output at the end of the process. And, you know, this may be a crass analogy, but look at cable television over the course of the last, you know, decade or two. We achieved peak cable as a civilization in, I think, 2011 or 2012. I had read a Bloomberg report on it years ago. And since then, it's been declining subscriberships. The concept, and this permeates B2C and B2B interactions, the concept of charging me uh, three or $4,000 per year for 800 channels or pieces of content, which I don't want, to secure me the three or four that I do want, and having no optionality, no flexibility, no transparency, no visibility into why that is, frustrates a consumer. And the vast majority of that market, that subscribership, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars a year, has now eroded to streaming services, which have baseline subscriptions. And in the case of some of them, like an Amazon Prime, a la carte additional usage-based content purchases. So I feel as though I am receiving value for money 
for my interactions. So I think that if the chief monetization officer role, and you know, we put someone in the seat and we tell her to maximize every dollar of revenue and margin and consider nothing but the data and analytics, you may suffer. If you put her in that role and say, I want to disrupt my competition, I want to provide value and transparency, I want to grow as my customers grow, uh, I want to empower them, I believe you're going to end up with a better result. And then that dovetails into that net churn, that dovetails into retention rates and, and the long-term value of the business, as well as whatever the markets are currently prioritizing, You know, which, which happen to be those things right now, as we've mentioned, around direct value metrics. Yeah, I'm going to lock on to that cable example because my cable company is also my internet service provider and I pay a monthly fee based upon how much bandwidth I want, right? And they announced about two months ago that they're going to transition to usage-based pricing where I only get so many gigabytes a month. If I go over that, I'm going to have to pay usage-based overage fees. And so I'm like, really a little pissed off. I'm like, wait a minute, I signed up for a flat fee for bandwidth. And now you're going to charge me for usage. I was a very unhappy consumer. And I think that's one of the risks that companies are going to have to evaluate. And well, I would recommend if you're going to implement a usage-based pricing model and you're an established company, maybe you consider doing it with a new product or a new prospect cohort versus your existing customers. What do you think about that? I think I would agree with an asterisk saying it depends highly on the type of product that you're offering. And it depends on what the expectations of your customer base are. And internet, I'm going to call a utility. Imagine if the lights went out each time you had consumed a kilowatt hour, you had to walk outside and put another quarter in the meter. That would frustrate you from a customer experience perspective, because that's not the type of product that you're trying to buy. And I think to your comment that you're an established long-term customer who had an expectation around the service you know, delivered, they've changed that expectation with you. So you do need to consider where your customer base is coming from, what their expectations are. If they were to move you to a usage-based model, I'm speaking hypothetically here and don't understand all of the detail, but if the reason they were putting this restriction in place, let's imagine in our, you know, our altruistic selves, they've maxed out the capacity of the network. And when you buy a particular plan for a gigabit per second, they reserve all of that capacity, whether you're using it or not, because you have purchased that capacity and you have unlimited. So one gigabit per second is reserved for Ray Reich. Nobody else can use it. And that became extremely expensive. And you were to benefit by now sharing that pipeline because you don't really use a gigabit every second of every day of the year. So offer me a less expensive model on a usage basis. And then now instead of a reserved capacity, I'll have a burstable capacity that I can share with my neighbors. You're demonstrating a value savings to me. You're now able to monetize your pipeline where you had reserved my capacity by sharing it, bringing down the price of all consumers. You're increasing your, your margin slightly, but everybody participating in this transaction is benefiting. It seems in what you're describing to me that that's not the case, <laughs> right? And this is the, let's hire the chief monetization officer and train her exclusively at the, at the cost of our customers, at the cost of that experience, at extracting every last possible dollar of revenue. And to your statement, I think just affirming my previous statement that if you approach it that way, you may struggle in the end. Had this CMO at the internet provider slash cable company come to you and said, rather than reserving you a capacity, I want to sell it across multiple customers. You're going to pay less. You won't experience very much of a performance change. If you're on board with that, please opt into this new product offering and all parties come out ahead. You may have a very different reaction to that change. So again, ultra important to consider the context of the product that you're offering, customer expectations in the market that you're serving. 
And Adam, that was great insight for the audience that's first considering usage-based pricing. Really understand how your customer's current C-value and go and get their feedback on, if that what you just said, let me reduce your base subscription cost because I'm going to allocate it over more customers. And then if you use it more than you pay, I think that feedback will be really important. Two last questions for you, Adam. One is metrics, and this is the metrics that measure up podcast. So for 10, 15 years, the metrics that investors use to decide what the value of your company is for investing and operators use to determine their efficiency, such as committed ARR or the customer acquisition cost payback period or gross dollar retention. Some of those I think are going to be impacted dramatically as we evolve to this usage-based pricing. Are there certain metrics that you think aren't going to be as important or new metrics that you think that a company needs to start thinking about if they're contemplating a move to usage-based pricing model? I think that in coming years, we are going to see a diminished emphasis on growth at all costs metrics. And it doesn't matter if you're losing 200% of your revenue per year, that's just fine. Look at your wonderful growth rate. And I think we're going to see emphasis on metrics which reinforce the longevity of a business. You know, we talked about a net churn rate. Imagine having an asset in your portfolio where without selling an additional thing any year, it grew by 35%. Without lifting a finger, the existing base has a net churn, your dollars grow every year. Emphasis on contract length, customer retention periods, lifetime value. If you have a profile, uh, you know, where you're, okay, you're uh, 80% growth, you're losing 200%, that's going to become less appealing to a company who may have a, a lower growth rate, but who retains customers for 10 years, who has a negative churn rate, who has growth every year just off the base. And I think we're going to see a consideration increasingly shift towards long-term value metrics and away from growth at all costs type metrics. That's a bit of a generalization, but I, I deeply believe that we're going to start to see that. No, totally aligned. And even though we've got a couple new metrics that we're thinking about, the two that we talk to every CEO and CFO about today are that net dollar retention, which really shows the power of your existing customer base to grow over time with minimal sales and marketing expenses. And second is that customer lifetime value to CAC ratio, because if you're really seeing your cohort of customers grow 20, 30% a year, that lifetime value is going to have dramatic increase as compared to your CAC ratio. So last question I have for you, Adam, and this was when I first met with you, I was really kind of enamored by this concept. And I believe that you coined and even trademarked this usage economy theme. Can you tell me in the audience a little bit more about what comprises a usage economy? Well, you know, certainly uh, usage-based billing is the practical example of that implementation. I think that the usage economy itself it may be a little bit of a philosophical description of a future state where interactions are based around value for money, are based around the way that we use things. And I could probably put an hour-long discussion into just this, Ray, but we sort of exist in this post-truth era, which hopefully is correcting itself uh, presently. We're going to see Massive disruption economically as a result of the pandemic and our emergence from the pandemic. We're going to see shifting business models. We have better access to and better sharing of information than ever as a society. 
the pressure being put on organizations to provide value, transparency, to be on the right side of public opinion, to be on the right side of the meme, if you will allow, is extraordinarily important. It can make or break or reset or change your direction uh, as a company based on the social zeitgeist in their interpretation of you. And we're going to, as, as a society, increasing focused on green initiatives, on maximum utilization of the assets that we produce. And this may be a longer term philosophical you know, thought, but we don't need 100 cars in the parking lot to service 100 employees. We need 10 cars used 10 times, right? Or perhaps we, we need to be virtual entirely in providing other services. So we're seeing a change in the way that we consume and, and deem consumption to be you know, appropriate. I think that's in a long term going to impact us. We're seeing the impact of rightness and transparency and value for money impacting us right now. And I think we're going to see this proliferation of technologies, the internet of things, and combinations of products, meaning networked, you know, the network of networks, no longer having a a fully, you know, integrated vertical stack, but I want to leverage the most efficient competitor in the space to add to my product offering. And I'll just take one minute to describe a very topical example being GameStop, a bricks and mortar retail company who's got a, a new shot at life from ending up on the right side of the meme, if you'll allow the term, introducing things like instead of a bricks and mortar retail experience during a pandemic, hop online, buy a set of headphones, we'll deliver them to your door in an hour or less in combination with DoorDash. So now I've added a delivery component from another network, another provider who has optimized that transportation and logistics. I want to add it into my value chain. I'm going to incorporate their service. Their driver is going to pick the product off the shelf. I'm going to monetize that and provide a, a margin for DoorDash to do that. I deliver the headphones to the customer and all that the customer has experienced is the headphones cost $12 more, but they were at my house in 35 minutes. So we're going to see combinations of products and networks and services being recombined to create new and inventive and complex offerings. We're going to see pressure on maximum asset utilization, fairness, transparency, a green focus, you being able to use everything to its maximum, um, which means monetize everything to its maximum as, as well if it's being utilized in a commercial context. Uh, so the usage economy philosophically, that's a very, very circuitous answer. But in the short term, it's about usage-based pricing. It's about reinventing and understanding, being competitive, being disruptive, and latching on to those notions of fairness and transparency, of making a disruption and offering a better, more innovative, better retaining model. And in the long term, you know, there's big philosophical topics underneath that term, the usage economy as well. So you've asked a very big question to end off on and could certainly go into great detail and have a long philosophical debate on that. But the usage economy represents, you know, a bright future and a lot of new opportunities and new options. Yeah. For almost 30 years, I've talked a lot about value-based pricing. And one of the ultimate incarnations of that was revenue share. And it was where you could price based upon how much revenue is being generated from your product for your customer, or it could be cost reduction. If you reduce cost by 5 million, you take 20% of that. Do you think those type of value-based pricing is going to be a component of usage economy? Certainly could be. And again, if you're if you're delivering value through one of those mechanisms, it absolutely could be. I mean, the combinations are infinite. And whether it's providing a service that may return value, it may be a revenue share on a, on a network or take a product to market or new ways of thinking about channels and partnerships and building that right into the model in these digitally proliferating zero net marginal cost type products. Once you've made the first copy, you can you can scale the thing. So how do you 
influence the network to scale it, to take it to market, maybe the sorts of things that, that you're describing. So I think those are elements, absolutely. But the tool chest really is mathematics itself. And what types of mathematics can we use to describe, articulate, deliver value, deliver a positive customer experience, uh, and ensure that we're creating great businesses that thrive on long-term value metrics? And that really is the panacea that I see, you know, underpinning that, that usage economy term. Yeah, and another foundational element that I heard you communicate a couple times through this entire conversation is the focus needs to be customer value-centric. Don't get caught up in a spreadsheet modeling exercise, but be focused on how's this delivering real value to your customer, right? Spot on. Make sure you understand what it is, not that you're selling, but what your customers are buying. Hey, let's wrap up with giving the audience a chance to get to know Adam a little bit better through a series of three kind of short questions. Number one, is there a CEO or company that you think is a must follow in 2021 for our listening audience? How can I not answer GameStop? So this has been caught up in an absolute social media craze with Reddit and Wall Street. That's the company has raised capital. They have accumulated so much brand equity through this social activity. It's absolutely unprecedented. Seems like they're taking big actions to shift, to modernize, to move to a digital model. And uh, I think a lot of people are really fascinated to see what they're going to do with this moment of opportunity. I like that one. That's a little bit different. Most of my guests are talking about, quote unquote, tech CEOs, right? Or Elon Musk. I really like that one, Adam. So second one, which tool, not your own, do you recommend that every B2B SaaS company should use? <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, I think, you know, for us, and this is sort of the, the big tool in the box uh, for any cloud or SaaS company is make sure that you have got a really, really good, strong cloud provider that you're working with and make sure that it's accommodating your automation and deployment needs, scalability, that your economics are, you know, accounted for. You enjoy the relationship of their ecosystem and applications developed on top of it. It will become, you know, the underpinnings of, of your technical tool chest from an infrastructure perspective. So make sure that you find a good one. We work with AWS at Logisense and we've had a, a great experience with them. Yeah, I like that one a lot. And then lastly, if you were talking to somebody who's just getting ready to graduate college and they said, I think I really want to be a founder of a SaaS or cloud company, what advice would you give them right now? Um, I think, you know, you're you're going to hear a lot about innovation. People will just, you know, cram words down your neck. And as long as you're on the right buzzwords, you're doing fine. Ignore all of that nonsense. Go find somewhere where you can provide real value to somebody. Try to do it uniquely. It's probably not as complex as you imagine it to be. Go get started. But identify an area where you can provide value and build around a, a concept like that. I think that if you are looking to found a company on day one with your exit plan in place versus your concept and your underpinnings being how you're going to create something great for people and make them happy, again, you're going to struggle. So look at the long-term, look at what you're looking to develop and consider the approach with which you embark on that journey. Focus around value, focus around understanding your value chain. Don't be afraid to disrupt. And I don't know what else I, I would add. Get out there and, and go for it. That was Adam Howardson, the CEO of Logisense. And he says, you got to follow GameStop. Definitely need to make sure that your cloud partner, you really understand that and leverage it to the max. And for those early career people out there, make sure you understand what you want to do. Make sure you define the path and go out there and innovate and disrupt. So thank you so much, Adam, for being our guest today. And to our listeners, if you like what you're hearing on Metrics to Measure Up, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe to our podcast 
Go ahead and give us a ranking recommendation and let us know how we can be even better for our listening audience. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.